This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning. So when I gave a talk the other morning, I was um, trying to evoke the spirit of intention, vow, resolve, um, how it has both a, um, you know, a formal dimension and how it has both, for want of a better word, an existential dimension. And I read this poem. Wilk with uncertainty towards the old choices for clear-cut answers, to a softer, more permeable aliveness, which is every moment at the brink of death. For something new is being born in us, if we would but let it. We stand at a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human creatures, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love. And Hillman. In some ways, I think part of the theme of my talk was, don't worry, nothing terrible is going to happen. And, of course, part of that's up to you, (laughs) what you choose to, uh, how you choose to practice. Um, And, in fact, uh, this this morning, I I wanted, in a sort of uh, circuitous way, get to the other side, you know. We, We could say, there's two questions, especially as we initiate, maybe as we initiate most endeavors in our life, you know. Um, what's my intention? What's my vow? And then the other side is, what does this ask of me? You know? Part of my appeal, the appeal of that poem to me is, um, it balances those quite nicely, you know. It kind of Yes, death is close by. Um, It's an interesting thought. I think it illustrates uh, something about the opening, the realizing that practice is asking of us. You know, when we're about seven or eight, it dawned on us, people die, you know? And then since then, the fact has remained the same but the relationship to it, the profundity of it, the pervasiveness of it, has been registering more fully. So in one way you could say, it's pretty obvious the nature of things, you know? We don't really need a whole bunch of Sanskrit, Japanese and Chinese terms to get it. We came out of the womb and started living it. You know? um, 
indietro. Such is the nature of our human existence that we need reminders, that we need um, something that shifts us out of what has accumulated over our human lifetime. In, in simple, basic Buddhist teaching, it says, well, we have these three primary impulses. We move towards what we want, we move away from what we don't want, and we struggle in an agitated way with that process. I'm sure you all know the word dukkha, right? Anybody never heard that word? It'd be kind of wonderful if you hadn't. <laughs> Maybe you haven't heard this uh, translation of it or definition of it. So it has two characters, du and ka. And the ka, um, in, in the core Sanskrit, it means um, being or presence. And the do, the root of the do there, the D-H-U, is um, contraction, you know? Contracting the presence of existence. Now, how many have heard of the term sukha? Oh, well, good. Um, so, sukha is generally translated as pleasant sensation. You know, when, when the mind softens and opens and becomes simply present, um, it influences how the moment is being experienced, and it gives rise to sukha. The su there, the ka is the same as dukkha, but the su is kind of spacious, soft, uh, in quality. So we have sukha. We have dukkha and we have sukha. And um, And this kind of opening. We stand at a new doorway, awaiting that which comes, daring to be human creatures, vulnerable to the beauty of existence, learning to love. Now, what's not to like about that? <laughs> Doesn't that lower your anxiety a little bit? <laughs> So given these, you know, commonly called uh, greed, hate, and delusion, uh, in case you didn't have uh, some way to beat yourself up or something to stimulate your self-criticism, um, <coughs> given their influence on us, um, there's, there's two qualities of practice. You know, this daring, you know, um, 
what does practice ask of you? Hmm? Actually, maybe uh, just take a moment, maybe close your eyes and see what comes to mind in response to that question. What does practice ask of you? It's an interesting correlate between um, what we might say, even in the realm of intention, you know, what do you want from practice or what's your agenda for practice? And then to just shift it, what does practice ask of you? And, uh, and, and as that quote I made about Dogen Zenji saying, Nobody can force it on you, and you can't force it on yourself. I I think most of us, um, or maybe it's just me, but I think it's most of us, (laughs) tend to, uh, in our virtuous, sincere dedication, bring in some sense of imposition you know, on this state of mind, on this state of being, on this arising emotion. Uh, especially when we experience the contraction. Yeah. I would offer you this notion, that when the sukha arises, uh, savor it, appreciate it, immerse in it, soak it up. That's the term that's used in uh, early suttas. Soak up that. Yeah. Like a sponge soaks up water. And when dukkha arises, uh, explore. What is it to not turn away? What is it to open to? And it's a delicate process, you know. If you engage in this way, you're going to spend the whole practice period noticing the gross and the subtle ways contraction is responded to. I suspect that everybody in this room has worked with that on the realm of painful sitting. Uh, I think we all go through a fire of thrashing around in our physical discomfort to discover that really doesn't help. And so, as a last resort, we try opening to it. Um, It's a little bit like dying, the truth of dying. We can keep learning and learning about that core truth. Um, 
And this process of realization, in, in the first case, in the Book of Serenity, you know, which, uh, which I'm not advocating your study. It's, it's, it's a very difficult case because it's so utterly stark. It, it's like saying, what is the summation of all the Buddhist teachings? <laughs> it doesn't give you a whole lot to go on. Uh, it goes something like this. Manjushri says, or the Shakyamuni sits down, Manjushri says um, something like, um, here is the Dharma king. Um, the, the Dharma of the Dharma king is thus. And Shakyamuni gets up and leaves. Uh, But in the commentary, it's a very interesting term. Um, and I'll tell you the term after I'll quote you these three random little thoughts. Um, the first one is, um, someone told me recently, they got a plate at a flea market. And here's what was written on the plate. If you want to bake an apple pie from scratch, first you have to create the whole universe. Okay? Here's the second, for instance. Um, someone said to me this morning, they said, um, I signed out the rest last night. How about that? Yeah. yeah, how about that? Is it something you want to hide? Uh, is it something you feel righteous about? I am going to take care of myself regardless of what the tinkin, the, you know, the tanto, the practice leader, the universe say. Um, that being accountable, uh, that being willing to explore the edge. This is a demanding schedule. No? That's how it is. That's how it's intended to be. It's not meant to be a breeze, you know? It's meant to have you discover what you're capable of. To explore that edge. Oh. I'm going to go to bed early in case, you know, I might start to feel sick. Mm. Maybe too timid there. Um, I'm going to force my way through it. I'm going to be nothing but heroic, determined, and let nothing stop me. Mm -hmm. 
can we force awakening? No. Can we force opening? That old, that old joke that I think most of you have heard, the diligent student comes to the teacher and says, um, if I'm really diligent, how long will it take to get enlightened? And the teacher says, oh, about 10 years. And he says, well, what if I double my effort and I'm really strenuous and determined, how long will it take? He says, 20 years. <laughs> And yet, to watch yourself, which way do you intend to lean? And can you stay upright? The process of awakening has its own sila, its own shingi. Within the shingi we create for our collective well-being and our collective awakening, our collective support of each other. There's that. But then also, the internal alchemy that helps you awaken, that balances maybe the ways you hold back and the ways you push too hard. And sometimes we see, we can watch the mind move from arrogance to self-criticism, you know? And in some ways, um, it's our search for balance, you know? You criticize yourself a whole lot, and then you sneak in a few arrogant stories about yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And then move back the other way. (laughs) How can we just stay balanced? Equanimity. And one simple answer is we watch. We watch both of those minds with, is that so? Is that so? The third, for instance, Mary Oliver saying, what is the name of the deep breath I would take over and over for all of us. What is the name of the deep breath that I would take over and over for all of us? Call it what you want. It's happiness. It's another way to enter the fire. One of Dogen Zenji's themes in his teachings, as he wrote them up in the Shobogenzo, uh, was Hotsu Budaishin, uh, arousing the mind of uh, searching for the way, the mind of awakening. You know? And that's what I've been trying to point at. You know? what, what is it? in the midst of all the things that come up for you while you're here. 
what is it that will help each of those myriad experiences offer some guidance, some expression of awakening? This is our challenge. Is it remembering something? Oh, like what Mary Oliver is pointing at. Those moments that often arise in the Zendo. Although sometimes I feel like they even arise at work meeting. Sometimes the the, the mood at work meeting is a little bit light or frivolous and it's like we're just not taking ourselves so seriously that day and then sometimes it's just quiet does anyone have any announcements no (laughs) okay then let's go to work (laughs) sometimes when we chant you know you can feel uh, the zendo turn into one voice. That one voice has one body. That one body has one breath. Uh, In Mary Oliver's sense, what is the name, what is the mind, what is the heart, what is the experience of the deep breath, breathed over and over for all of us. Call it what you want. Sometimes it's just the sound of the creek. Sometimes when we've been sitting quite a while, it seems, it feels that the creek flows through us. That what we call mind and the sign of the creek are not so different. These moments of contact, these moments of um, being. In the Zen school, you know, Zen, Chan, immersion. Zen, Chan, Jhana. Um, This immersion both points at, illustrates, and expresses awakening. And Dogen Zenju says, 
This is what we're exploring as we go along. In the Bendava, he says, the seated expression of it is Jiji Uzamai. Another dangerous term. Who hasn't heard that term before? Good. (laughs) And I'm sorry for those of you who did, (laughs) because... But hear it for the first time. (laughs) Um, It essentially means um, (coughs) opening and engaging and being what arises through this conditioned human existence. And explore what it is to abide in that flowing stream. In the terms GGU, um, Samai is Samadhi, continuous contact, and the GGU is, um, has the character of ease in the engagement. You know, in the talk I gave, I was talking about the dawn experience of you struggle for a practice period being dawn, practice period ends, you go off into the red dust of the world without a care or a thought about that. You come back and there's some sukkha, there's some su, there's some spaciousness around. Uh, being a dawn. Probably you're still not perfect at it, but somehow having engaged it, having succeeded and failed and uh, tried harder and tried softer and, you know. And this is the messiness of our practice. It's, it's not a pristine event. You know? Maybe for the rare few. You know? They say Shakyamuni came out of the womb and took seven steps. Uh, I think it's the rare few who do that. <laughs> Most of us come out and give a hearty cry. <laughs> what the hell is happening? <laughs> then we realize maybe it's not okay to just keep yelling out like that, <laughs> especially as we become adults. <laughs> um, so in the commentary to that first case, the Dharma of the Dharma King is thus, the term comes up in its Sandeva, Sandava. When a horse is answered, give a horse. 
when a poem is asked, when a horse is asked for, give a horse. When a poem is asked for, give a poem. And when salt is asked for, give salt. Curious mind, adventuresome mind, engages without uh, some forcing. To explore this. And usually we find our vow, our intention, our resolve, as we're skillful with them. You You can check. If your vow, your intention, your resolve are something that you need a break from, you know, or something that uh, you have to stiffen yourself up to engage, um, maybe look more carefully at that. This, this is, this practice is to alleviate suffering and promote awakening. It's not to exacerbate dukkha, contraction. It's to exas- it's to bring forth sukha. But it's a messy process. Expect to make a mess. <laughs> Someone asked William Stafford, how are you such a prolific poet? He says, I just lowered my standards. <laughs> no. Lower your standards about what you expect from yourself. I would suggest, think. You know, delusions are inexhaustible, and I'm going to try on pretty much every one of them. <laughs> one way or another. And I vow to practice with them. Uh, internally, collectively, it's a beautiful notion. Um, any thoughts, any questions about that? Or was that, I hope that was, yes? You did indeed. I've never heard that before. It really spoke to me. And I was wondering if you could um, you say a few more words or open that up a little bit. How many words? <laughs> My choice? Oh, okay. Sometimes having a so called limitation has its own uh, kind of adventure. You know? <laughs> I took a, a poetry class once with Naomi Shihabna, who comes here in the summer, and she said, okay, you're going to write a poem, and it's going to be three words per line, and it's going to be your life story. <laughs> Do you know? Okay. 
Have you heard of the term objectless concentration? That wasn't a very confident nod. That was like... That term? So sometimes it's, um, it's coined in relationship to shikantaza. You know? That in shikantaza, there is no fixed object that's, that's um, being connected to or being contacted. It's the, the awareness is established and everything that happens is made contact with. And when that contact is continuous, that's samadhi. Now, in, in the early canon, the use of the term is broader than that. You know, the, the, it has a variety of meanings. And um, with, with that, um, I would say, especially in relationship to the term shikantaza, just sitting, has a um, appropriateness in the Zen school, and I would say, in many of the meanings that it has in the early canon too. And it includes, if you think, continuous contact includes one-pointedness, because the continuous contact can be with a single object, or it can be with this flowing object. But I'm going to loop back, not today, but I'm going to loop back to Dogen Zenji's uh, GGU Zamai, because uh, it does seem, when you look at the, ex- the extent of his teachings in uh, Shobogenzo, that that particular term and that way of engaging and expressing and manifesting GGU Zamai it is pivotal. Yeah. And this other term, uh, Hotsu Buddha Shin, arising way seeking mind, arising Buddha mind, um, is also a pivotal term. Any other questions? How much conscious study of other teachers within Zen Center and coordination of their of the teachings do you do or on the reverse conscious distance from other teachings um, and other teachers at the school do you do because you shared many words that were said in very similar ways last practice period um You know, a funny thing happens to us as teachers. Uh, look at Norman Fisher and I, who's sort of in and out of Zen Center now. He, he has his own robust and thriving Sangha. But every now and then, and not frequently, but we'd meet up and, you know, in, in a casual way, because we're both intrigued by Zen, I mean, even after all these years, <laughs> we'd talk about Zen. It would always be remarkable to me, you know, you would think, oh, these guys must have been comparing notes, you know. Or you would say, well, you're talking very much the way Rab talked. I have no idea what Rab was saying last practice period. And uh, we didn't talk about it. I think um, 
we come from the same school of Zen. We've gone through the same training. We've trained here. Um, so I think it's that's part of it. And then there's other ways. We're we're all quite different, you know. But we we don't we don't compare notes. Yes. You brought up Stuka and Duka, which I kind of had always assumed is like happy, sad, successful. Mm-hmm. It seems more like a keel underneath. Sukha? Sukha as melancholy, did you say? I think of Duke as being sort of like a lovely wheel. That's often, that that term is is often used, you know, because somehow when the two compounds are put together, it's often translated as out of balance. You know? And then people say it's like a wobbly wheel, because a wobbly wheel is out of balance. As it turns, it isn't equanimous. It's 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 not upright. It's it's wobbling around. So it feels sometimes like being sad or melancholy doesn't feel wobbly, I guess. Um It's helpful to remember that, especially in the Soto Zen school, we are not trying to manufacture a certain attributes of existence. We're working on how we're relating to whatever arises. So uh, a certain mood can arise, can cause us distress, agitation, in other painful emotions, or not. Hmm? And and what I was just saying a few moments ago, Miles, was that for most of us, um, whether we like it or not, we we get we, we try on we. We struggle with a whole variety of responses, you know? and it's not, and I would say it's not even that we then figure out. Sometimes we, we set our mind to figuring out, but as, as you'll see in a moment when I quote uh, from Dogen's fascicle on Hatsubuda Shin, uh, there, there's layers of complexity to our human consciousness they don't simply avail themselves to figuring out. I would say we live through, and and hopefully we can encourage ourselves to be as conscious as we live through all the things that come up while we're in practice period. You know? And, and, you know, any one of them can be um, a teaching. And in fact, Sometimes opening fully to what we might consider a failure, a negative emotion, uh, opening up to that uh, can uh, teach us a lot. Sometimes it teaches us a lot about dukkha, 
Um, nice work if you can get it. <laughs> it's a little bit like appreciation and, uh, and gratitude, you know. When, when, when the, and enthusiasm, you know, when these things come forth, they have a buoyancy, they have a space, they have an energy. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes they say, the Buddha is the, um, the skillful physician, you know, that, that he, he brings forth the appropriate medicine to each state of being. Yeah. And so the challenge for us as our own Buddha, as our own uh, medicine person, how do we bring forth uh, these conditions that, that can help us, support us, and uh, encourage us? Yeah. And when I talk about the inner alchemy, you know, the, 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 you, you know that the root of that was turning lead into gold. Yeah. So it, we can, you know, how I, it, I think it becomes appropriate. It's like, how do we take our afflicted, agitated uh, states and start to relate to them in a way that start to loosen up the dukkha. Yeah. And I would say enormous patience. First, lower your standards. Second, remember, delusions are inexhaustible. <laughs> this is not a quick fix. <laughs> and third, give yourself a break, because um, it was quite a shock coming out of the womb. <laughs> and it's been quite a shock since then, too. <laughs> I remember watching my grandson in his early weeks and months and thinking, wow, there's, there's, no, there's no letting up on what's asked of you. You know, first thing you've got to learn how to breathe or you're really in trouble. Then the next thing you've got to get the digestive system working, you know, like... There's uh, so much to learn. And we come at it fully committed. Yeah? Yes, I will. Yeah. And then we take on this human life. Um, okay. Let me quote you a little bit of... Uh, Nishijima's, Nishijima Roshi's um, translation. But let me tell you a story first. He, in this he says, um, Chitta, the discerning mind, the thinking mind, is a primary agent. And once I was in Japan, and, and I, had, I was staying at uh, can't remember the name of the temple, I was staying at Harada Tangan Roshi's temple. 
and I was offered a, an interview with him, Dogosan with him. So I don't know why I thought I would bring this up. Maybe because uh, this sentence, I'm jumping in, I'll, I'll come back to the start. He says, Chitta is called thinking mind. Without this thinking mind, it is impossible to establish Bodhi mind. And for those of you who don't know, in some ways, this utterly contradicts uh, a great deal of Zen teaching. And so, for some odd reason, I thought, that's what I'll ask Harada Tangan Roshi about. And he looked at me like, you idiot. <laughs> you want to waste my time answering that? <laughs> and uh, and uh, he, he, uh, he dismissed the notion and then he dismissed me. <laughs> In general, this is, this is the, uh, the translation of this fascicle. In general, there are three kinds of mind. Chitta, here called thinking mind, hridaya, here called the mind of grass and trees, and brilya, here called experience or concentrated mind. Thinking mind, hridaya, you know, heart, yeah. here called uh, the mind of grass and trees. That one's tough. And then the third one here called experience mind. Um, as the sense door apprehends the experience, we call it sign of the stream. You know? We call it tree outside the door. We call it touching my fingers. Yeah. This is how we um, create a universe so we can make an apple pie from scratch. Of course, we also have to create the notion of an apple pie. We have to create the notion of apples. And we have to create the notion of baking. So this is chitta. Um, it's not a neutral event. No. If you watch carefully, it's amazing how um, so many things, almost everything, we have some uh, some feeling response to it. No. <laughs> it's a little misleading here when it says hridaya is grass and trees, or grass and uh, yeah, grass and trees. And if you think how this comes up in some of Dogen's fascicles. But here's this footnote. Um, 
The mind of grass and trees describes the instinctive processes that exist in the life force itself that are prior to consciousness. I would modify that to sit a little to say they're not prior to consciousness, but they're prior to the consciousness in which Chitta has stepped in and gave it all formulations. You know? You know, this is why I would say, experience the experience you're experiencing. If you forget everything else I said this morning, I'd offer you that. Experience the experience you're experiencing. (coughs) As we experience... There is engagement, there's interaction. Interaction quite naturally takes us beyond the separation and thinking about and naming. Of course, experience is seminal. How else can we say the side of the creek unless ear consciousness has experienced it. But so rapidly, in a fraction of a second, uh, chitta steps in and labels it and maybe adds a few adjectives just for good measure. The soothing sound of the creek, the melodic sound of the creek, the annoying sound of the creek. My sitting would be so much easier and more profound and deep if it was quieter here. We add a few adjectives and then we add a little commentary. Uh, But at the heart of it, the heart of it, pradaya, this process of engagement. This is an interdependent existence. You know? As human beings, we're not only stimulated by the creek, we're stimulated by each other's actions, each other's way of being. This is what creates the connectedness of Sangha. This is what invites us out of a separate self. And it's a wonderful thing to watch. When do you feel connected? When do you feel isolated, alone, lonely. I read quite recently that the British government has just set up a post called the Minister of Loneliness. 
And it's this person's job to, I guess, look at the issue of loneliness. So, maybe they'll all practice mindfulness. The heart of being, you know, Hridaya Sutra, the heart sutra. The great wisdom beyond wisdom. Wisdom beyond that which is cultivated in citta. The great wisdom beyond wisdom, heart sutra. And then the last one, vridaya, vridda, vridda. I've been chewing on this word for uh, quite a while, searching out, you know, because anyway, I was in India and I had the good fortune to run into a Sanskrit scholar and I took the opportunity to ask him about this word and it was a little bit like, uh, you know, you ask an expert in any field what exactly a word means, and after about the second sentence, they're just <laughs> ticking off into a level of exquisite detail and cross-referencing. Uh, but I did get something out of it. Uh, experienced and concentrated. Um, I would say to go back to the way I was using the word samadhi, you know, the, when we make contact and immediately interrupt contact with citta, naming it, liking it, disliking it, having a commentary about it, and now that I've said that, that reminds me of something else, you know? And now that I've acti- activated all my psycholi- or some of my psychological significances, let's talk about me. What could be more interesting? <laughs> um, so not so much concentrated as we usually think of it, single-minded concentration, as continuous contact. As I was saying earlier, you know, even when you continuously contact a negative emotion, it can have a rich teaching for you. you know? Sometimes we dip deeply into an emotion and it's like, oh, and of course, if I have that deep feeling, I'm prompted to this kind of behavior, or I... It's the insight doesn't come from figuring out. The insight comes from dipping down into vridha, and then it bubbles up. And don't take that too literally. Uh, I certainly don't mean to be literal in that spatial reference. Maybe it expands out. Hmm? Sinks down. Sinks down. 
uh, a continuous contact enables a depth of experiencing, an intensity of experiencing, a fullness of experiencing that's deeply informative. Chitta Hridaya Vridda. Yes. Paul, could you please spell those three words further? Chitta? Well, uh, even though it sounds like it's C H, usually it's spelt in Sanskrit. There is. It's Excuse me. Uh, starting to sound like that Sanskrit scholar. <laughs> Ask me a simple question, I'll give you a complicated answer. <laughs> C-I-T-T-A. Exactly. And, and actually, it's, it's a term that has a variety of meanings. And with this, this particular one, according to Dogen, and he's writing the fascicle, so he's referring to thinking mind. And then hridaya, another Sanskrit word, is H-R-I-D-A-Y-A. And then Vridda is V-R-I-D-D-H-A. Of Vridda? What I was saying was, I was commenting on um, Dogen's, where he said, experienced and concentrated. And I was saying, rather than concentrated, continuous contact. And then what continuous contact gives rise to is what we might call a depth of experience, or a breadth of experience, or a fullness of experience, but somehow a richness. In contrast to thinking about it, you know. And that that, that is informative. You know. Go ahead. Let go. Dogen often says, mind is grass, trees, and walls. He does. And there's somewhere where he says, people think that mind is thinking, dreaming, imagining, knowing. And he says, no, it's grass, trees, and walls. Um, and yet here, he says it's, it has, it's threefold. Um, my understanding is that that particular phrase is a classic Chinese phrase. In, in that it's important to, re, to remember that, you know, to us, not knowing the classic references, we think, oh, this is, all this was crafted by Dogen. He's the original. But actually, like Fukan Zizengi has has drawn a lot from a, 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 a teaching about uh, Zazen that was written a hundred years before. And, and really, in a way, you could read it as a commentary on the previous teachers. You know, 
But we don't know that. So when we read grass teas, walls, tiles, and pebbles, we think, Dogen just made that up. No, it's a classic term. And he's referencing a classic term. And, and here's part of the challenge for us, is because um, Buddhism, whatever language it's involved in, you know, each language has its own convention of reality. And then Buddhism comes along and it coins its own terms out of um, the words, like, like we, we've, we have the word in, in common language now, mindfulness. You know? well, if you just go back to English, um, that doesn't, doesn't, doesn't easily represent what in Buddhist terms we've taken it to represent. And so similar with some of the phrases in Dogen's language, Just putting aside though all the history of the term and just confronting it, sometimes I kind of get it, but it's a feeling of holy shit. No, when you feel that, and there's no explaining it, and often it comes after, say, coming out of a sweat lodge or something where you you've been off, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But then it really has impact. Yeah. And that's what I'm saying. When there is depth, fullness of experiencing through continuous contact, it's potent. That experience has experience that the one that we, that sort of happened and we didn't quite notice, it doesn't have. Now, the one we didn't quite notice is available for that kind of contact. No? We, we don't actually have to do the whole sweat lodge to walk out and see the tree. <laughs> the tree was always there, or I was always capable of seeing it. But coming out of the sweat lodge and seeing the tree, the intensity of that seeing expressed itself and a deeper experience. And it's not unusual. You, you know, uh, to have a deep experience and to remember it for years and actually to still have a taste of its wordless potency. I, th I think many of us are... Uh, that's what keeps us hanging around this strange Zen thing, is, is that you know, we've, we've had an experience... That, that spoke to us, that spoke to Chitta. And I was like, hmm, okay. You know? And then, as Mary Oliver says, call it whatever you want. You know? Call it Buddha, call it Christ, call it, you know, Great Earth, whatever you want to call it. Um, that is the nature of chitta, to try to integrate it in the conventional lived experience. Yeah. 
Otherwise, how will it inform, how will it illuminate the everyday mind, the everyday habitual way of being uh, that we have taken on so endearingly called me? Glenn, did you have? I was. So how does that relate? <laughs> um, Glenda asked me, how does the term sati relate to what I'm saying now? Um, We, we could say, Glenda, that as we, as we take on these notions, as, as we let them uh, cook with our um, intention, as we let them cook with um, what does practice ask of me, that we will see that being aware is a way to engage, express, and manifest what's implied by these teachings. And, you know, and, and we, we could define sati as awareness that doesn't have a, an agenda. You know? Be aware of what's happening. Hmm. And in some of the early suttas it will say, and, and the initiating point is sati. Hmm? And then others will say, no, 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 first of all, you, 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 you've got to like clean up your act, you've got to get a little generosity in there, you've got to get a little diligence, you've got to get a little patience, you know, and then we can get to sati. <laughs> but really, uh, these, it... These are all suggestions, you know. They're not intended to say, this is the only way, you know. Um, maybe that's a good place to stop. Any other questions before we do? Um, experience the experience you're experiencing. It's who, who's experiencing? I, I kind of have some fault with um, the language. We'll change it into the language that works for you. (laughs) Experience the experience that's being experienced. I guess it's just like, what is experiencing? Is it separate from what's being experienced? Um, Chitta can explore that. and, and say, oh, well, we've got here an infinite regression, uh, or all sorts of, uh, or, you know, let's look at Descartes' philosophy, because he, he worked on that. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of things Chitta can do. Um, in the Zen school, we're saying, we're pointing at experiencing and letting that illuminate the nature 
of conditioned consciousness. And then from that perspective, um, we, we see, well, me, self, it, it, it's a proposition that is being used in relationship to the nature of consciousness and um, it has a functionality in the conventional world and it has a limitation in that it can be used in a way that doesn't embrace hridaya and vridha. That help? Do I identify yeah. with? I mean, I is, yeah. I is what thinks hummus for breakfast is slightly yeah. unpleasant. <laughs> yes. Or um, we could examine it a little more. Was it the sight? Was it the taste um, that stimulated uh, pleasant or unpleasant, that stimulated associated thoughts? Uh, you know that, and as they took hold, was there um, an engagement of a sense of self in all of that? Yeah. And had I not eaten in three days, would the thought of arisen? Yeah. That's another factor. It's just like what's instructive about it beyond like this is just conditioned reality. Yeah. And this is the wisdom of the plate Dana Veldin bought. Dana Veldin is a Zen priest who also writes about cooking uh, the plate. You know, to make an apple pie from scratch, first you create the universe. You know, you create something called hummus, you create a, a quality of pleasant or unpleasant, good or bad, uh, tasty or distasteful. Um, you create um, a sense of me relating to this. And if you think about it, if you think, so consciousness works. I think, interestingly enough, Western science and Buddhism align here, about a sixth of a second. So in the following 10 seconds, I had 60 thoughts about <laughs> that. <laughs> and if you can imagine, if we were thoroughly present for half of that, how incredibly informative it would be. Yes. Yeah. Um, but I guess I get what you're saying. Like well, a, a sixth of a second is pretty fast, you know. 
it's, 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 I mean, it's, 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 it's quite a challenge. If you, if you can spot gaps, if you can have six experiences a second and think, but there were so many gaps, you're doing pretty good. <laughs> Yeah. Anything else? Okay, I will put um, I'll put that copy of Did you ever do a triple translation on this one? Hotsubodashin? No, okay I'll, I'll put them It's uh, case 70 in Nishijima's Shobogenzo I think in Kaz Tanahashi's the numbering's a little bit different. And, and I'll weave that back in. Um, to me, it's, when I first read that, I couldn't believe it. I, I thought, no, that can't be a good translation, or correct translation. Then I read some others, and I thought, hmm, there it is. And then I got soundly dismissed by Harada Tanganroshi. <laughs> I'll put it on the reserve. Um, and, and here's, uh, I had intended to do this, and maybe I will in the next uh, class. I think it's good that we stop and go back to the Zendo and wash your ears out in the pure side of the creek. Um, I had intended to do a repeated question. Uh, your partner, you know, you, you pair up with someone and that person keeps asking you the same question. What does practice ask of you? Uh, but maybe you can be your own partner and ask yourself. Or maybe you want to try it with someone. Um, if you know the, the structure of repeated questions, if you don't, it, it's not about putting you into your thinking mind. It's about having you drop down into a more sort of instinctive response. And it's interesting, when you do it and you really drop down, sometimes you say something that comes as a surprise to you. Huh. If, if, you know, there, there, there's some ways in which we're quite intolerant of our own stuff. Yeah, I've heard that before. I've heard you said that before. But <laughs> when we say something new, it's like, oh, okay, now I'm getting interested. <laughs> what else have you got to say? <laughs> uh, what does practice ask of you? It, it's it's a you know um, practice asks something of us, and we're not so happy with that fact, because this part of us would much rather that it um, it <coughs> fitted nicely into our agenda. And that's why we need this. Um, most of us need 
some of the, um, the reassurance, the trust, and the composure that comes from a skillful intention. You know, the, the intention that says, okay, I'm going to commit to this. Um, I'm not expecting it all to go well. I'm going to sit zazen now. I'm not expecting my mind to be pristine. I'm expecting it to do all sorts of things. And I sincerely intend to sit with awareness in the middle of all that. And we'll see what happens. And if it's ever anything like other times that I've sat, <laughs> well, diligence and benevolence, they, they seem like they're an odd couple, but actually they're a great match. You know? Diligence and benevolence. Yeah. This is your best expression of living your life. You are the way you are because of your the continual effort to meet the life you're living. You know? Why wouldn't you be kind to a person who is like that? Thank you. <laughs>